Welcome to Tilth Talk Radio. Today we're going to be talking about chemical and how it's affected by heavy residue and cover crops. In our spotlight, we'll look at how AI is going to assist with spraying chemicals. Ag History Minute, we'll talk a little bit about the history of chemicals and residuals. And we'll wrap things up with Cool Beans That's Corny with some current events. With me today are Bill Schomburg. Hey, guys. Max Garvey. What's up, everybody? Todd Schomburg. Hey to all the Tilthies out there. And I'm Matt Brueger, all with Tilth Agronomy. So it was a sad week last week. Max Stradamus struck again, and, well, the Brewers are down and out. One one lost three. I was mad at you, Max, but you called it. You did. You can't. I don't care what anybody says. You can't be that cold at the end of the season. Like you just can't. It's not going to work out. You, you can't gotta, turn it back on. It's like like in the NFL when they rest guys that week. I always the feel playoffs. like that's a bad idea. Yeah, you got to all gas no breaks, right? You got it. It's 162 games. That's a lot of gas. <laughs> With I mean, you, you, if you want Yelich and Kane to sit down in July, fine. But but they didn't. That's what the All-Star breaks for. You, you give up the first part of the season to come out come. and hit hard the second half. The whole month of August, or September, they really didn't play that well, though. Yeah. It was, exactly. They, they no, it was like too early. Well, it was like they couldn't turn it on. Yeah. I, they, it's not that they weren't trying. It was just like they, they, betted, they just lost they it. They betted 192 in that series. I would disagree when you say that it's not like they weren't trying. It didn't look like they were trying. <laughs> we ended the season Yelich with the bat on his shoulder. It's ridiculous. That's absolute garbage, bull crap, MVP, my butt, batting. That just terrible performance. You cannot end the season Looking. with the bat on your shoulder. Yeah. It's unbelievable. I don't care. I don't care how but, much of a. But what would Grandpa say about? It? We had a Grandpa love baseball. Oh, played yeah. till. You know, would play on the Dairyland League, and him and his brothers. One of his brothers was really good and played minor league ball in that. And yeah, he he. What would he say if you take take that look in at the I end? I don't know. He wouldn't be happy either. No. He'd be as he, fired up as Max is right now. I think. I I just I, he, I don't he, get it. He I wouldn't don't. watch baseball like at the end. Like I mean, he lived till ninety eight, and we grandpa we want to turn some baseball and Papa. We called him and nope, they're overpaid. I I cannot watch them. They are just. <laughs> They don't play for the love of the game. They play for the money, and that's not right. That's what he, Ooh, he and would say. I'm normally not like a baseball hardo. Like they get paid too much, and they just uh, they don't care about anything. Did it all that stuff? Like no, but when you're getting paid that much money to stand there and just hold the bat and watch the ball go past you yeah. tw- twice out of the last three pitches. It's kind of I was pretty tough. The Braves did pitch well. They pitched well. Yeah, and they said going in it was going to be low scoring games, but. I will guarantee you that every time you score zero runs, you will lose. <laughs> yep. <laughs> wow. Right? Mark it down. That's my Bill Stradamus. <laughs> yeah. That was, ground, that was groundbreaking stuff. You Thanks, gotta score Thanks John least. Madden of baseball. Oh, I thought you were going to say John Gruden. Someone yeah. should Whoa, whoa, <laughs> do, 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 do. Dis- uh, well, Have you seen your brother's email? <laughs> but you got to find a way, right? I mean, like yeah. what you're saying, Max, is you're not going to get on base. If you don't at least make contact, right? At least make contact, get yourself on base, and then try to get a run or two. And well, our pitching staff can can win a two to one. We won the first game two to one. You got that's what they were going to have to do, and they couldn't even scratch I don't, a run. I don't think Christian Yelich is self aware enough to realize that he's not the MVP anymore, and people are not afraid to pitch to you. 
Right. You haven't hit, done anything all year. People are going to throw you strikes. It's not like, you know, two years ago when everybody was terrified to throw them a strike where they're just painting corners and staying outside and just trying to get through. You're, you're right. right at him. Like, the way they're pitching to him is, is like he's a... He's, he's, a, Joe, he yeah, was, he's, he's a seven-hole hitter now. Like, And they pitch to him like it. So I just... Yeah, I thought that was super... Yeah, t- tough look. Bummer. Tough look. I'm glad, I'm, now I'm really glad I didn't buy the Yelich jersey, I guess. Mm. <laughs> what a turnaround. But, but no, he'll be, he'll be great next year, and I'll watch this. But right. still, I still... I like him. I just... I think that's not the way... That's not the way I would want my season. I, don't, I wouldn't want the season to end with Aaron Rodgers holding the ball for eight seconds and taking a sack. You know what I mean? At least or chuck Aaron it up. Rodgers not being able to throw on fourth down <laughs> and kicking a field goal like that. <laughs> hey, they won. Okay, yes. They played. As uh, multiple people have said, there's no style points. You want to turn my mic down for a second so I can scream? Because <laughs> that was, was an interesting game, a weird game. Kicking a field goal on third down. Still is blowing my mind. I don't know it's what we were doing. There's a bad snap, but but okay, Max. Here's the There's problem. Never I have with a bad it. Well, and if there is a bad snap on third down, Max and you're kicking it, a forty some yarder, we that becomes be a- that becomes like a fifty eight. You yeah, know, like right. that works on a twenty yard chip shot, and right. it's overtime. But not a not. I'm I'm agree. All I, the analytics in the world that we're following, and all we do is analytics, analytics, analytics. How many bad snaps do we have in the NFL? Oh, right. What a joke! Well, and if you do get a bad stamp, you're it's done. Yeah. You know, like there the yeah. isn't. It's the guy misses it, and the other team catches. If it. If we were on the twenty yard line, and you said, "Oh, we want a bad snap," I still would have been like, "Okay," but it wouldn't make a whole lot of sense still. But well, that's what it, the it announcers forty nine. It was a forty nine, forty eight, forty nine yard field goal. It was over forty. It was a if, long one. If they snap that and it's a bad snap, like we can't kick that field goal anyway. What's the difference? I just. That was a wild, wild. They they were trying to defend him on the broadcast, like Lafour is being really smart here. And I was like, "How do you figure that we're being smart planning on a bad snap in the NFL?" Like, I just, yeah, it was, yeah. But we won, so that's all that really matters. Yep. Luckily, no one could make a field goal in the last like <laughs> I did ten minutes when the their kicker, when the Bengals kicker, like cheered he, like he, he was, made it. Yeah. And like, oh, that was just great to see him just cheer. And they after the game, they asked him like, "Why, you know, what did you think?" He's like, "Right after I kicked that, I don't know how I could have missed that. It was the wow. best kick. Like he just, it so was, something had to have been going on. It was down really there close. There's something too that. I mean, when you look, I, he he didn't hit the upright. He hit the flag. The, flag, the little flag wavy thing. Yeah. So. I I thought it was hilarious that the two kickers went out for the well, overtime and- uh, coin flip. <laughs> did you see that yeah. yeah yep todd it had to be that though because it wasn't like mason just had a bad day and or their kicker I, had a bad. it was both so well it had to have been something the, weather related the because it was the same direction too that they were missing there was one that crosby kicked that from his foot had no chance of going through the uprights there was one he kicked that was like a knuckleball sure. like that he, one had no chance every other one he kicked what Came I agree off, with Max. It wasn't off, like and then, they weren't total shanks every time. It sure. was one shank and the rest were. He he did have one that was like oh, middle school football kicker. Like it was, <laughs> it was ugly. But the rest of them Mid- middle school. He takes I, his helmet off and he's gray fox in it with the like. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know if if this is the week you dye your hair after like missing that many or shave what, your hair. You gotta change yeah. something up. Do something. I don't know. The beard's got to go. I don't know. Because yeah, the I ain't worried about him. The end of the game when he missed yeah. both those, that was the same direction the Bengals kicked. 
Because if, okay. you if you sure. notice, when they lost, Mason did not waste any time pointing, pointing the other direction sure. that he wanted. So. You're right. I didn't think of that. He probably did did want it because he also missed the coin toss that he called that wrong. Yep. And But maybe that was on purpose so he could pick directions so he could I, kick it. It's got to be crazy thinking about stuff like that when you're... When you get to the NFL and you actually have to like pay attention because a little bit of win can make the win or lose a game. Like I coached, you guys know I coached middle school football this year, and like the only thing I ever said was we want the scoreboard in the fourth quarter. That was it. Like that was the only decision that was ever made. What does that mean? We want the we scoreboard. want because high school stadiums usually only have one scoreboard. So you want to face. You that? want to be driving towards the scoreboard in the fourth quarter. That way, if you have to score in the fourth quarter, the scoreboard is in front of your quarterback as a reminder, so you can so they can see the clock. Oh, okay. there's only Just one. The there's only one. Well, see right. the clock, see the score, see how far it is, like all that yeah. stuff. Because there's only one. I mean, yep. There's only one Makes scoreboard sense. at most of them. What does Lambo have? Three, four. <laughs> yeah, you got the two big ones, and then the little one on the. Well, there's there's one at each end. There's they got a couple that are over the, like the tunnels that are just like the score, right? Might be. There's one on the. East side too, above the boxes. I think just yeah. a generic one. But that, why, why for play clock? Why doesn't that turn red when that? You know, like think of the shot clock in basketball. Like a warning. Yeah. Like hey, shit. Like think of that of all the scoreboards they got, and they don't have the play clock that when it hits zero, a strobe goes off, Does and it, you you know. Or like, look at like on the broadcast now, it hits five and it turns red. Yeah. Or like you said, Todd, does, does the ref in the NFL do they count when they get down to the last ten seconds like no. they do in high school? <laughs> they should because no, I feel like they. they you know what I'm talking about where they count like in the air, like they wave their arm for every. No. Just hit. give them a couple more years, they'll just have huds. Like everyone will have the plastic shield, <laughs> and, and it'll have like your score <laughs> and the timer, everything else on it. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. Anyway, I, I'm i glad the Packers won because when they lose it the whole week, I feel just... Big game coming up against Bears. the Bears. The Bears. Not Bears. It's for the top of the north right now, man. Aaron Rodgers, or uh, Justin Fields is, uh, they said the other day, of all the quarterbacks that have taken snaps, he's like 42nd best quarterback against the rush. So that's not good. So, so we got we to gotta just get him. Yeah, which our pass rush has looked... It's okay. It's looked better every week. I don't know. I think it's better. It's not like the Bears have this great offensive line either, so should be able to get after it. Especially without your two best, you know, you don't have your best pass rusher, and now we you don't have your best corner. So, but we should we should have a new linebacker this week. Yep, that's the plan. And they signed a new corner too. Yep, they signed Quentin Dunbar. I doubt he's going to play this week. I would. I wouldn't was, think. Yeah, I, they said uh, he was practicing, but but we signed him the same time we signed Jalen Smith right. as far as in the week, and Jalen Smith didn't play week one, so yeah. I don't know. But either way, I still think, well, he might have to play, though, because it sounds like Kevin King didn't practice again yesterday. So, which isn't a huge loss, I don't yeah. think, for our defensive. It's a game. It's okay. Yeah. It's just better when you don't even have to think about him being in the game sometimes. He was putting his head in it right away. He always he does hurt. that. Yeah. He always does that, and he weighs 140 pounds. He needs to stop doing it so he can stay healthy. <laughs> He's hurt all the time. Be smart. I don't, I, yeah, I'm kind of over the Kevin King experiment, so. <laughs> Got it. I loved it when we drafted him, and he just hasn't done anything, so no, I'm kind of like, no. yeah, okay. No, they. it feels like the Packers, too, won't give that up. Like, It's I hard. Mean, after the they NFC Championship, him. I don't know how but he's look how long gone. Look how long we, hang, we hung on to Josh Jackson because yeah. we drafted that, him high. Yeah. When you draft someone high, you're, yeah. you, you hate yeah. to admit defeat, but it might be time. It was last year. Yeah. It's, he's not terrible. Like he's way better than a lot of corners. It's yeah, just he's just not good enough. And it makes him look worse because he plays opposite Jair Alexander most of the time. Right. So yeah. 
All right. You guys ready to talk some chemical? Ready. You got it. All right. So this topic was a suggestion. Came in from Nick Peltier over in Brown County. He's a listener, so shout out to Nick. Thanks yeah, for the thanks, idea. Nick. So he he mentioned in his email that uh, Rodrigo Worley, who is our uh, extension specialist when it comes to weeds, always mentions thinking outside the jug. So not just thinking of, oh, I'm going to spray something and, and be done. you got to make considerations, consider how it's going to react in the environment, how what you're targeting. So it's always important to be proactive when you're planning for what you're doing. So... And specifically, you mentioned chemical and heavy residue and or cover crops, so how, how those can impact what you're doing. So, first of all, you got to ask yourself a couple questions. Are you spraying to kill the cover crops or to provide a residual? Or are you doing both? So, a lot of times we have farms that might be planting green, so they're looking to not only terminate the cover crop, but they also want to make one spray pass and get the residual at the same time. Is that a good idea? Bad idea. Should you kill one, then put your residual down? Um, can you get good soil contact to the so residue or covers that are there? Because it seems like, and I've, I know I've talked to a couple farms on this, and I don't know if you guys have had the same experience, but we're almost getting too good at like spreading out residue on combines where it, it creates this like blanket yeah. over the soil, and I don't know if that's a good thing. No, correct. Think of like how many, these are soil applied residual herbicides almost all the time. Yep. And so what are we doing? Like you say, with all these chopper heads on combines and, you know, you're basically making that sort of thatch blanket or mulchy kind of blanket that then creates problems for herbicides where you have like a perfect underneath that thatch, you have a perfect place for a seed to germinate if it is under there and you have a spot where our herbicides aren't really going to be able to get there and, and stop that seedling. Exactly. And so now we're, and we're almost kind of encouraging more tillage now because of that. Cause it's like, well, I've got to size that residue, break it up. So now you're, you're having to do that vertical till pass or, you know, some sort of tillage just to manage it, to get either the soil opened up or get down to the soil level. And, you know, there's, there's ways we can manage that, but First, like Todd mentioned, you know, we want soil contact with a lot of these herbicides. So managing risk when using your herbicide and cover crops or dealing with residue is always important. So I found this article from the University of Minnesota Boo. and some of their research. It is a good article, though. And On a stick. So in order to... You know, make contact with the soil. Like we said, we've, we've got to deal with residue or cover crops. And sometimes we deal with carryover in the, those situations where, as we're trying to plant our cover crops, we might have carryover. So it's always important to think in, in terms of risk management. So, you know, what is your rotation? What kind of tillage, if any, are you going to do? Are you dealing with carryover from last year? And if so, how does that limit you? So plant back restrictions are important. Um, when they evaluated cover crops, they found that tillage radish was the most sensitive to carryover, while cereal rye and hairy vetch were least sensitive. So when you're dealing with 
residuals sometimes that could be something you have to watch in how you're establishing cover crops herbicide carry herbicide carryover depends on um the weather from year to year largely rainfall and when it's applied so the more rain we get in a year the less likely you are to have the herbicide carryover and it's going to break down faster also looking at um, timing is very important so timing is kind of everything do you spray it early spray it late you always got to watch those plant back restrictions when you're getting on the late side because some of them can be pretty long a lot of these residual herbicides like Acuron I think it's 18 months by label to uh, alfalfa so yes it is again managing that rotation and so the earlier you have it in <clears throat> applied can be the better for managing your your crops and now your row crops which are cover crops as well I also found this other article nursery management it had an article on top 10 reasons herbicides fail so fail to read the label is number 10. Well, yeah, you should always read the label. We've talked about that before. Um, disrupting chemical barrier, and that's where we get into this residue cover crop, is pre-merge herbicides form a chemical barrier over the soil. So the barrier is typically there to keep anything new from coming. Well, if you have heavy residual and it's not making contact with the soil, or if you have a cover crop there, you know, there's space being taken up. Well, and even think about, Matt, like our spring this year, how it was great for planting, but how dry it was. So you go out and spray your residual on, and you're just hitting residue, and you don't get rain for three weeks. A, you're not activating the herbicide that does get to the soil, and B, it's all on top of the, re- on top of the residue, so you need possibly that to wash it off and hit the soil. So kind of a double whammy there, so you're exactly right on that barrier that... Um, Maybe in in essence, it is better for herbicides to have black dirt to hit versus res, um, residue on top. Yeah, exactly. You know, a lot of it is moisture activation. So if we don't get a rain, you know, if you're in an irrigated situation, you have a little more control over um, what you can do with that. But, you know, that's another reason we might see failures out there. So it's always important to keep these things in mind when you're going through. Remember, cover crop systems can be high management. So having goals is important. Is the the goal to have the cover crop there, or is the goal to keep the weeds down? You know, They can both meet that goal, but you have to make sure you're thinking about those things as you're moving through the season and what you want to achieve with both your cover crops and your herbicide applications so the persistence length of time that they remain active varies depending on chemical so got a chart here from penn state um so things like atrazine or 60 days authority has a very wide range 32 to 302 days it's pretty aggressive <laughs> caprino 50 to 120 days classic about 40 days corvus 50 to 120 flexstar 100 days Stinger, around 40 days. Pursuit, 60 to 90 days. And Python, 14 to 120 days. And those are just the examples. There's lots of other chemicals out there. How is Authority or Sonic? 
three hundred and two days, and the next longest is like one twenty. That's you'd think the plant back on that would just be insane, then. Right, and I so I'm not sure what happened with that one. If I'm guessing they had one example where it just persisted, it just persisted, it, and that you know other things that make a difference is soil type. Yep. As we know, if you yeah. if you're reading your label, you look at soil types. Um, you're got to change depending on what you're planting into. I wonder if that pH I know affects pH, pH organic matter, yeah. and I wonder if that one's greatly affected by something like that. Could be. Um, so, like we said, pH, organic matter, cation exchange capacity, and clay content all can increase herbicide persistence. Microbial activity also has a significant impact on herbicide persistence, and it's a dominant mechanism of herbicide breakdown and degradation. So if you think about conditions that are favorable to microbial activity, warm temperatures, adequate soil moisture or wet soils, aerobic condition, good fertility, medium pH will favor breakdown. So actually when we're talking about soil health, we're creating no, the healthier soil will be will break down, down these herbicides quicker. Yep. Yes, yep. so I, I think that is a very interesting feedback loop there. That you might say, well, my weed control almost got worse potentially at a certain point, but that could be a good thing because your microbial activity is building and that's yep. good. It means your soil is healthy. Yeah. So it's interesting, you know, when you think about all the all the factors when we look at, you know, and I don't know what experiences you've had, um, but I've got some some long-term no-till fields where we've had some issues with early breakdown of herbicides or, you know, weed breakthroughs that we weren't expecting. And when you think about it, it it does make sense because if their soils are healthier, then, yeah, it's breaking down faster. Especially you got to think about your weed bank at that point. If you know you got really weedy field or something like that, some of those might take longer to sort of get that feedback loop, you know, figured out. That is one part with, you know, with regenerative egg, a lot of that's pushing towards less and less herbicides. And I've always struggled with that of when can you really do that? And like you press like Gabe Brown, that's doing it out in North Dakota in his book, he talks about that, but he never gives numbers of how much less herbicides he's really using and what he's doing. And that one is one where I've always struggled and pushed that if we had more information that way from the regen, the guys truly doing regenerative egg you know, what, what their numbers are, what they're using, what types of herbicides maybe they're using, something like that would be helpful. But I do think it is so case by case that what happens out in North Dakota is going to be a lot different than what happens in wherever you're growing something. So it's, yeah, it's just, an, that is a very interesting point, Matt. Yeah, no, and I, I started looking into this after getting Nick's email. It's just, it started to click on some of these things. Like, yeah, the more you look into it, the more we really should be thinking about how, Increasing soil health is going to impact our I, chemical programs. I think with the no no oops sorry 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 <laughs> I've noticed the increase in in a focus on soil health and no till cover crops that kind of thing. Our weed bank can change on a farm. So uh, like this is a farm that's a steady dandelion lambs quarter problem to flip it and we started doing no till and two years later we don't see dandelion or lambs quarter ever we see giant ragweed and foxtail now like and it's like like this was a this was a dandelion farm for 20 years why is it now all of a sudden different and it has to do with that and i i would think some of it comes from the way certain chemicals break down in the soil has to have some effect 
on that. I don't know exactly what, and I don't know how you would quantify that either. It's some, but I mean, think of what we're doing is when you change the community in that soil, you're changing what that weeds would germinate in, right. that, in that instance. So you you can see drastic changes over time of, of what weeds you're dealing with, and then that means you got to change your how you deal with them as well. But it's a really good it's a really good uh, example of how this kind of regenerative ag and some of this stuff can ch- changes your weed program so drastically so quickly, or can can potentially change it. I think too, as we're we're talking about you know herbicides, and I mentioned it earlier. Why are we doing the herbicide? Is it just to kill the cover crop? Is it to provide that residual? And you can use a cover crop as a weed suppressor. So if you're doing that, maybe you don't need to put the residual on at the same time. If if you are going to kill, maybe that's something for later as that residue is breaking down. Because your healthier soil, too, means that you're potentially going to break down that residue faster. So it may be something to think about splitting that out or making more of a two-pass system I feel like I've seen already in some of the, like you're talking where we're using the cover crops are our residual and maybe we get two, three years out of that. And then, you know, one year the cover crop isn't right. And we go back to residual. I feel like, uh, the residual works way better than I remember it working before. So you're actually starting to change that weed population already in a couple of years. I don't remember the number, but the other thing to think about is your, your rye cover crop or some of those have herbicidal characteristics mm-hmm. and, actually can work almost just as good as a herbicide at certain points. So that's something to think about too is what kind of weed suppression are you getting, you know, and some of those rate in the 60 to 70% suppression ratings, and that's as good as some herbicides are on, on weeds. So that's something to think about too is how do, how do we match those things? And it's hard because we all like the residual herbicides, but sometimes there's certain instances where, Maybe you do have to use more of a a contact type of herbicide and wait till certain weeds are up and and going and then go after them that way. But it's all making sure your program has that all set up. And I think the contact herbicides too could give you more flexibility. And when you when those weeds are there and when you could spray it too, you know, obviously you put the residual down right away, and that's there. You know, you're until it it degrades, it's there. So it's going to be controlling weeds all the time. Where you let that go, you let the corn do a little bit of the work or the, the crop do a little bit of the work and you let your cover do more of the work to keep the weeds down. You have some that come through, like maybe you got ragweed or something that you can come through mid-season and, and go ahead and, and then take care of it. You didn't have all that residual in the ground that's that's doing damage or whatever throughout the, the season. Also, too, think, Matt, to build on your no-till, um, we're almost setting ourselves up for herbicide failure when you think about all the things that we're doing in no-till. You know, we're we're um, having better drainage because of infiltration, so better microbial activity going to break down the herbicide better. We have more, um, resi- like we were just talking, more residue on top because we're leaving it, so harder for the herbicides to work. The soil's maybe a little bit colder, or a little bit drier, a little bit wetter. So all the things that we're doing in no-till are great for soil health, but maybe not for herbicide activity. So that's something to think about too. If we're maybe looking to 
to not have the herbicide persist, yeah, we're we're going in the right spot because we can get a little control out of it, but it's not going to persist throughout the year as, as much as maybe in a conventional tillage would. Yeah, no, I think you're right, Bill. And so I guess trying to, just to kind of wrap this all together, so the more residue you have, the more cover crop there that you have, the less soil contact you're going to get. So when you're thinking about your chemical program, you know, think about what you need to do. Are you looking to kill something or are you looking to get that residual in place? And if you could manage it um, with one or the other, whether, you know, you're having enough residue to kind of hold hold back the weeds, you probably don't need the residual right away. It's something that you can always throw in your back pocket. There are many that you can do on growing crops as they get later into, excuse me, later into the season. You know, what are the conditions of your soil? When you see failures, what's the problem? Is it because they couldn't make soil contact? Were the weather conditions right? Heavy rains right after where, you know, we need a little bit of rain to activate it, but we don't need six inches of rain to wash it away either. What are we doing to weather-wise to kind of affect what's out there? And really, the healthier your soil gets, maybe it's less conducive to that residual herbicide. So changing how we manage, you know, looking at different ways we can manage that weed bank or that um, that weed issue that we may have definitely bears consideration. So <clears throat> it's a great question, Nick. Thanks for sending it in. I think it, it's a long discussion, more than we can cover in one episode necessarily, um, but definitely gives us things to think about as we we move forward and... Yeah. A lot, of, a lot of tributaries in that river. Yeah, there's so many different avenues that you have to kind of shore up to get a final answer. That you could, I think, we could do episodes from now till the first of the year and still not get to the bottom. And I, I do know that, um, you know, right on the Brown out of Gaming County line, they're doing some research on how some of these herbicides affect growing covers. As we are doing interseeding and some different stuff, so as we get more details out of those plots and yeah, we had other our things. Derek or. Research guy sprayed some of that for him, and yeah, Bill, you found a bunch of different herbicides to use and kind of see how they affect you know the cover crop. And I I think all of that does change our you know as agronomists, we got to do more research now and figure out how we want to change our herbicide programs. It's not the old use the old Lumax, Acuron, you know, it's it's using different types of herbicides and other stuff. What's that, Max? Uh-huh. Nothing. What's wrong with Lumax? <laughs> Nothing. No, that's exactly what I'm. That's exactly what I'm smiling about because that still is the the premier program. But and that's having finding some holes in it too. So yep. you know, as we move I, on here, I think that's generous to say, Todd. It's very generous <laughs> of you to say. So there you go. When you're thinking about how you manage not only crop residue but also chemical and both chemical use and carryover, you do have to think about what what your goals are and how it's going to affect what's out in that field. So now we'll move into our spotlight for today. So today we're looking at Green Eye Technology, which secured its first commercial sale of AI-enabled precision spraying technology. So we've talked about this before, about companies trying to target weeds specifically so you're not spraying the entire field. 
I thought this tied in nice with our topic or at least um, kind of helping manage areas more specifically. So a large farming operation in Israel purchased the green eye technology in order to help with, so our AI, obviously artificial intelligence. We've seen that pop up in other aspects of ag too. We're just trying to target specific um, areas and have it, the machine be able to identify what's weed and what's not. Um, we see it in drones with a lot of these stand count programs and stuff now being able to identify what it, what is a corn plant, what is not. Uh, so it's the first stage in the company's global rollout, which will continue in early 2022 with a launch in the U.S. market. They plan to work with corn and soybean farmers in the Midwest and will increase availability to other states in 2023. So they are backed by Syngenta, and GreenEye says its precision spraying technology has been proven to cut herbicide use by 78% and reduce herbicide costs by more than 50%. So apparently it costs enough that (laughs) even though you're getting a 78% reduction in your herbicide, you don't get that same reduction in cost. But uh, while also improving weed control efficacy compared to a traditional broadcast spraying. I wonder, like, even the reduction herbicide, are they, you know, think of when you spot spray around the yard, you know, your rate is different. So I wonder if that, too, is when they pulse that herbicide on. Can you, you know, do you use a little bit higher rate at that point? And sure. um, that is, it's, that's a really neat technology. And you're right, Matt, that fits right in with what we're talking about that, you know, maybe 10 years from now we're using this type of sprayer and you change, you know, you have a cover crop down to hold weeds back and then, you just have to come back twice with a technology like this to spray what weeds are there. How many times do you walk a field in the summer and you're like, ah, oh, there's not a lot of weeds out here, but there's just enough that it's it should get sprayed, right? Those and, are hard. As, and, and Roundup's changed that to make this like zero tolerance for weeds. Right. And we all know you can have a few escapes and that's still economical and it's fine. Um, and a technology like this would help that where there's those in-between fields that's like, ah, it's a couple spot sprays. And and how how much know. do you dislike spot spraying? Oh, it doesn't work. Literally had it where, and it was a small field, and the farmer got done spot spraying and sprayed more acres than what the field was because it just, yeah, like it just doesn't, it's hard. I've never seen, I've never been, had a spot spray. I've been like, yeah, no, that was, that was good. That was just, we got either we end up spraying the whole field or we don't get half of it. Yeah. And you just, yeah. Well, when sad. you try to spot spray, it's like, okay, how many acres do I mix? Right. right. It's a 40 acre field. Well, am I going to be doing five well, acres, that, 10 acres? Well, so this technology, how many acres do they mix? Right. I, yeah. It's, it's gonna well, be I would diff- assume they mix full. I mean, I would think it'd be like most time when the co-op goes out, they mix full tanks and they have as many people as they can on the same program. And when they run out, they run out. Yeah. It'd just be an interesting way to do it too. Or like if you have, 78 per, you know, percent less herbicide, you just mix up for every time you mix 22% of the herbicide you would and just <laughs> go until you run out. But I, and then some of these are coming out with new technologies too where it can induct right on the line, you know, where yep. you've got yep. the it herbicide never, in it. It never ju- mixes. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so once you combine those technologies, yeah. it'll be even better yet. So, Or, or is it going to get to a point where a satellite or something can pick up? Well, pick out the weeds and you're like okay this is the square footage that has to get sprayed and that's you know imported into the monitor even before you. it'd be hard though too is like the next day you might have a new weed come yeah like like, uh yeah but 
yeah, it, it is a cool technology. Man, but if you're if you're using that much less, you might be going out three times a year because, right? If you're correct, I feel like you would spray, spray more more often. times. But yeah, you're doing less at a so time. So you get back to the same number because you got to pay that many more uh, app fees. But well, and, and like they said, that it was a seventy eight percent reduction, but only fifty percent in cost. So that either means, like Todd mentioned before, they're doing a more potent spray to target the the specifics. So you're using more more herbicide per plant, but less overall. Or you know, if something like doesn't make said, sense with those numbers, right? Or like we said, they're going you're going out more often Correct. because you're attacking those. So your your costs aren't going to be reflected by the full reduction because there are either additional passes or potency issues yeah and i'm sure whoever owns this is uh making sure that they get their piece of the pie so oh, yeah. yeah and i wonder with a the residual then too does that go back to when you're spraying residual either you don't use that technology or can it recognize brown ground too and know okay we gotta put our residual down where it's open but maybe it could skip over or do you or do you do it on soil type you know like right heavier soils get more herbicide because it gets tied up easier you just drive slower so it works. <laughs> Fine. Yeah, it's, it's cool. It would be interesting to see next year if, as it moves into the U.S., um, they're targeting Midwest. So maybe somebody in Wisconsin will try it. Who knows? Yes. We'll see what <laughs> Max. You got some ideas? Yeah. Yeah. All right. Now we'll move into our egg history minute. So this week, since we're talking chemical, sticking with the theme, we've got an Ag History Minute about the history of chemical use. So chemical weed control has been used for a very long time. Sea salt, industrial byproducts, and oils were first used as ways of killing weeds. Selective control of broad-leaved weeds in fields of cereal crops discovered in France in the late 1800s. And this practice soon spread throughout Europe. Sulfates and nitrates of copper and iron were used. Sulfuric acid proved to be more effective. Application by spraying. Soon sodium arsenate became popular as a spray and a soil sterilant. So really the opposite of soil health right there. (laughs) Just kill the soil. (laughs) Kill it all. Uh, On thousands of kilometers of railroad right away and in sugar cane and rubber plantations, Hazardous material was used in tremendous quantities, often resulting in the poisoning of animals and occasionally humans. I will say railroads to this day are as clean as a dinner plate. Yep. So Sinox was the first major organic chemical herbicide developed in France in 1896. In the late 1940s, new herbicides were developed out of the research during World War II and the era of, in quotes, miracle weed killers began. Within 20 years, over 100 new chemicals were synthesized, developed, and put into use. Chemical weed control superseded both plant disease and insect pest control in economic impact. In particular, the year 1945 was the key to the development of selective chemical weed control. Introduced then were 2,4-D, 2,4-5-T, and IPC, the first two selectives as foliar sprays against broadleaf weeds, and the third was selective against grass species. So, you know, we talk all, all often about grass versus broadleaf, um, having control over different things. And so 
all back in the 1940s. So yeah, thought that was kind of fit in again with with the topic we're talking today. It's amazing they use sea salt for herbicidal properties, considering how many things you go to the grocery store and they advertise with sea salt. Well, you think about like I know vinegar and and well, we talk about salt in general. Like right. salting crops is not a great thing. No. Um, also, I know <laughs> one that that I've seen employed is when you use. Uh, Gasoline to clean out your brush for varnish. That makes a great weed killer, too. So woodworkers, you've got some leftover weed killer. A little diesel fuel, you know. Yep. Have you ever heard of 245T? Not since it was outlawed in the 70s, so I didn't hear of that one. Grandpa's probably got a jug of it laying around. Yeah, there's somewhere somebody's got a bottle of that probably hanging around. 245T. So I'm guessing it's related to 2,4-D, just with mm. a different chemical because it's it's dichlorophenoxyacetic versus trichloro. Tri-chloro. So like you yeah, say, it's another it's, ingredient that yeah. was initially added with 2,4-D. Yeah. One has two chlorides. One has three. What's the difference? Thanks, Max. Yep. I passed high school <laughs> chemistry. We got a lot of John Madden's in the studio today. <laughs> I actually don't think I did pass. I don't think I took <laughs> high school chemistry. Now that I think about it. All right. All, All right. right. For any of those out there that also did not pass high school. No, I'm just. No, thank you to all our listeners. We appreciate it. Just thank you for listening to the podcast. Please tell a farmer friend about a podcast. You might say, well, what is that? How do I find these podcasts? And you tell him that on his Apple phone. So if he has an iPhone, he should search in. Apple Podcasts, Tilt Talk Radio, and in Android, he might say, "Why? Well, now I have an Android phone. They don't. You can't get podcasts on there." And you should tell him there's three good apps: Podcast Addict, Podbean, or Player FM, and just download it right on his phone and download our podcast for him, and they can start listening. And also, we have a way to listen that's even easier yet. Um, for those new listeners, go to tiltegg.com/podcast. And even on your smartphone browser, you can use that, or on a computer, and you can listen to your first episodes that way. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Tilth Talk Radio. So if you got some more ideas for topics or questions or anything like that, please go to Facebook and at Tilth Talk Radio or Twitter. So while you were doing that, I looked up 245T. This is Wikipedia, so grain of salt here, but it's apparently the other half of Agent Orange. So 2,4-D and this mixed together makes Agent Orange. You be careful with that grain Ooh, of salt. It kills weeds. <laughs> so that's why, yeah, I know. You see what I did there? <clears throat> so that's why it was outlawed is Agent Orange, <laughs> which I think a lot of us. Well, I can't say I argue with that one. Logic on that one seems I, pretty solid. I think they put in like diesel fuel and kerosene. It was in Agent Orange 2, I believe. Yeah, it says... Uh, I'm trying to think of what all made Agent Orange, but it was... So it says the it was equal parts, 2,4-D, and this mixed together. Let's click on Agent Orange. I'm sure, yeah, there was other things added to it. And that's more of like a... Yeah, as a... Yeah. Wikipedia, again, grain of salt, just says it is a mixture of equal parts of both herbicides. So... Maybe they did mix it in for added yeah. 
burning. Bur- yeah. It was for sticking. It was a sticking agent. Yep. Maybe that makes napalm if you mix agent yeah, orange and could. diesel and yeah. gas. <laughs> yeah, we're on a watch list now. We're just talking about <laughs> all these things you shouldn't do. How to make two? Uh, it makes sense when old farmers say they find agent origin, you know, in their farm. Well, it is probably just two four five T, right? Like, just don't mix it with your two four D. All right, so let's get into our current events with, for the week. We've got cool beans, and that's corny. So cool beans, cool beans, cool beans, cool beans, cool beans. Our cool beans this week is a farmer's effort to give thanks explodes into a humanitarian cause. So Jacko Garrett led an effort to share the bounty of his farm, and it grew into one of the most remarkable humanitarian efforts across the entire ag industry. So for 40 years, he's been trying to feed the hungry. Started with a single trailer of grain, grew into monthly deliveries, and continues today as a river of plenty with millions of pounds of rice, all directed at the needy. So some... Farmers write their own history, and Garrett, who is now 78, has made his mark. He said, if you hear my story, remember I am a nobody. The Lord gives every single person a gift when we're born. My gift was knowing how to handle a shovel in a rice field. It's the best quote ever. <laughs> that is great. It's like, that's like Super- saying the world needs ditch diggers too, man. Yep, so Garrett. I just, I just love it. If, if, if you hear my story, just remember I am a nobody. So like, like if you remember it, then he's obviously not a nobody which is great. It's just, yeah, it's a great quote. So he's from Texas, uh, about 45 miles south of Houston, where it is a big rice area. And so Garrett Farms revolves around rice, livestock, and live oak silviculture. So he took the reins of the operation in 1966. In 1983, his wife Nancy took control of the cows, leaving him running the rice side of the business. He began the foundation seed for Texas A&M AgriLife Beaumont Research Center. Did some really innovative things. Seed was scarce. We were dropping seed rates, so he did some trials with seed rate on rice, working with the university there, and so he's always been uh, based in his love of farming. He's been based around rice, and he was curious about every variety. So he's done a lot of research on his farm to help grow it and turn it into a way of helping feed people. So it's very cool. Yeah, I've shared the Harvest Foundation. Now we'll move into our That's Corny for this week. And I'm sure many of you have heard about this one. The deer workers go on strike after the UAW fails to reach a deal. So thousands of deer and co workers began a strike yesterday, Thursday. According to the United Auto Workers, UAW, uh, days after overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly rejecting a six-year labor contract that was agreed on with the tractor maker. Earlier this month, the world's largest farm equipment maker and the reunion and the union reached the agreement after weeks of negotiation, but 90% of the workers voted against the deal. So the tentative deal would have covered about 10,000 production and maintenance employees across 14 facilities in the U.S. I uh, 
just add this to the list of things that make it hard to get parts right now, I guess. Yeah, well, we, yeah, we know there's supply issues, and I'm sure there's probably been issues getting hours because you can only build so many tractors before you probably have to reach a stopping point waiting on parts. And I, I don't know if there would be an issue getting hours, seeing as there's only like half the people who going to work right now that there normally is too. Like, I don't know. I'd be weird. Be weird trying to manage 10,000 people. I can tell you that. Yeah. So I found it, Matt. I went to Britannica, not Wikipedia. Okay. Is that a little Brit- more? We're back, we're back to 245T. Did you grab yeah. a book? <laughs> I did. I opened it up. Uh, so it's, so Agent Orange is 24D and 245T, like you said. Also had as a small amount of 2378T, which is called dioxin, which is very apparently toxic in very minute amounts. The interesting thing, though, is do you know why it's called Agent Orange? Because it turned orange when you mix them all together? Well, there's also Agents White, Purple, Blue, Pink, and Green that were used. In is this Reservoir Dogs? Yeah. Yeah. I saw that movie. I didn't think it had to do with Vietnam, but okay. Vietnam. The names were derived from the color-coded bands painted around the on the storage drums. Oh, okay. So it had nothing to do with the herbicide. It was just the drums they were stored in. Must have had a color coding on... Uh, use purple today, and well, well, I'm assuming the two, four, being it's all numbers, they all coincide with some. Well, that's the the chemical properties of it, right? Yeah, yeah. So, so, but, the, so I find a an old barrel with an orange band. Probably don't stick my head in it. No, yeah, don't drink it. Don't or a purple, or it. a blue, or a pink, or but pink. really the orange one is the one we want to stay yeah, away from. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we did some damage in Vietnam with that. Oh yeah. Lauded. Well, and it wasn't, wasn't just the U.S. and yeah. in Vietnam. It was uh, the British used it, I think, in Asian countries too, like Myanmar. And I remember seeing something about that when I looked it up too. So, yeah, it's nasty stuff. There's a reason we don't use it anymore because it is effective, but at a cost. So, that'll do it for this week. Thanks for being here, guys. Thanks for having us, Matt. So remember this week we talked about chemical and how it impacted by heavy residue cover crops carryover. So it is a management decision, so make sure you're using your best judgment and looking at all things when coming to make that decision about whether or not to use certain chemicals. In Spotlight, we looked at green eye technology using AI to help enable precision spraying. Our Ag History Minute, we talked about the history of chemical weed control. Cool Beans was Jack O'Garrett and his humanitarian efforts out of Texas. And That's Corny was the deer worker strike that just started yesterday. So thanks for listening, and as always, happy farming.